Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the legacy of the Mothman and the legacy of John A. Keel, the author of The Mothman Prophecies. My guest today is Brent Rains, who has been involved in ufology since the age of 14, and that was 55 years ago. He is author of Visitors from Hidden Realms. On the Edge of Reality, Dreamweavers, The Mastering of Time and Space, and most recently, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries. He is also editor of Alternate Perceptions, an online magazine founded in 1985. It's been online since 2001 and is currently on issue number 290. Brent lives in Waynesboro, Tennessee, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Brent. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, Jeff, it's uh, certainly a pleasure and an honor to uh, be a guest on your, your show. You've been involved in the field of ufology ever since you were a teenager. Uh, which is a long time now. And today we're going to focus on the Mothman Prophecies, John Keel's famous book, and the legacy of John Keel himself. I think one of the first things that we should call attention to, because some of our viewers will undoubtedly have seen the film, The Mothman Prophecies, that came out in 2002, is that that film doesn't really tell the story that John Keel wrote about. No, it really doesn't. Uh, there was a lot more to it. Um, I did talk with Keel after the movie came out on the on the phone and he said that he was happy that it created the atmosphere of how it felt at the time during his investigation and and people you know what they were going through uh the anomalous activity that occurred but he said is you know it uh it was uh it had that hollywood touch to it and uh but he was pleased with it himself I'm under the impression now it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, and it deals with the intuition that something terrible was going to happen, and then this uh, the Silver Bridge collapsed. Forty-six people were killed. But as I recall, the movie doesn't really make much of the many appearances of the creature referred to as the Mothman that occurred in, in that Ohio River Valley. Right. There's a whole history of many, for years, uh, paranormal activity uh, through that area. And, and uh, this is this was, you know, a part that caught his attention. And and uh, in fact, he was in the area of West Virginia at the time uh, investigating. He he was interested in all sorts of uh, unusual stories. And uh, one at the time was a, a story that uh, was in the newspapers a few years earlier about a family that owned a cat that had these appendages that were kind of like wings. And by coincidence, while he was, you know, in West Virginia investigating that, 
uh, these four young people um, near Point Pleasant claimed they had encountered what later became referred to as the Mothman. And uh, and that's when he got involved and he made, uh, I think in 1967, about five different trips to the uh, Point Pleasant area. He even, uh, you know, sky watched on uh, nearby hills to see if he could catch a glimpse of some of the um, UFO activity or the Mothman or whatever. Uh, originally, it was called simply the bird. Uh, but, you know, at the time, Batman was a, a popular uh, TV program, and uh, some journalists decided in, a, in an article to call it the Mothman. So that's how that uh, came about. But uh, Keel had some very interesting experiences uh, doing these investigations. He realized a lot of the Mothman witnesses, uh, UFO witnesses, were having uh, unusual psychic experiences, poltergeist activity breaking out. He'd even uh, come to the conclusion that ufology should be a branch of parapsychology. And uh, I actually was lucky enough in, in working on this book, uh, John A. Keel, The Man, The Missing Ongoing Mysteries, that I, I wrote and had published in 2019. Um, I reached out to a, a Dan Drazen, who is a, a documentary producer who currently lives in California, but at the time he was in New York City, and he had re recently seen a UFO, and he approached John Keel at one of his talks, and uh, Keel invited him to uh, come with him to, to uh, West Virginia. And he met uh, quite a number of the people. He had plans on making a documentary for a uh, PBS affiliate in New York City. He had one of the people come down there with him. He saw strange objects. Uh, he had some very unusual experiences himself. And uh, unfortunately, at the last minute, the um, company decided, you know, they they weren't going to uh, fund the project. But he was ready to <laughs> he was ready to uh, do that. And uh, you know, uh, this experience originally, Keel thought, you know. Back in 66, when he started investigating these things full time for, for a, a couple or so years, that, uh, you know, he had the standard idea, as a lot of people do, that it was nuts and bolts ET visitations. But then he realized that there were so many other complex elements to this. And certainly Point Pleasant was one area that he, he, uh, came to realize, uh, quite, quite quickly that, uh, there were some things that were really, really strange. And, uh, he even, uh, observed one night as he was on a hilltop by himself it was early morning and he's listening to a new york radio station eating a candy bar and suddenly uh almost like a classic flying saucer just whizzed by his uh, automobile and seemed to go down into a gully just beyond his car and uh he said uh, admittedly although he's he was used to uh, walking through uh, graveyards and, and uh, desolate places and being up late at night and sky watching. This unnerved him. He locked all the doors and was, was afraid, uh, uh, you know, something else was going to happen. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, there's a lot to the, the Keel story. I, I had the, the pleasure of actually, as a young teenager, writing him uh, for the first time in October 1969, and uh, beginning uh, correspondence with him. And I asked him at one point, uh, how could I investigate these things myself? You know, I'm, I'm you know, do, certainly was developing uh, quite an interest. I had a little mimeograph newsletter, which I actually used to exchange copies with him of his anomaly newsletter that he put out at the time, uh, dealing with um, 
a lot of the findings that he was uncovering and sometimes of newspaper clippings he would you know include in it so uh we exchanged correspondence and over the years sometimes phone calls and such and uh I developed a great deal of respect for him and his uh, approach uh, and getting out into the field and, and uh, actually meeting the people and, and hearing the whole story and, and uh, doing what I guess you call an unstructured interview where uh, you listen to the story you came to hear, say a flying saucer landing or something, and then you ask him about other things unusual that have happened to them, you know, over the course of their lifetime. And, you know, and a lot of times you, you hear all sorts of other very anomalous experiences. A lot of the ufologists at the time when they go and interview witnesses, they're not looking for, you know. It could have been uh, a poltergeist manifestation, a uh, cryptid type thing, an apparition, a ghost. Uh, in fact, in 1970, he uh, wrote in one of his books, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, uh, you know, um, paraphrasing here, but it was to the effect that uh, ghost aliens uh, take your pick, you know, uh, not sure there was a whole lot of difference. The the reports of a aliens often have apparitional appearances. And so when I asked him what I should do, he recommended a book I read on apparitions. Uh, he recommended I uh, study uh, studies on, you know, hauntings and uh, Marian apparitions, religious experiences. He felt they all had very similar similar elements. And he was really one of the very first people to make this connection that such diverse things as cryptozoology and ufology and parapsychology, religious miracles, uh, were all part of a, a single phenomenon. Well, he was certainly one of the early pioneers who really uh, was making that clear at a time when ufology, it wasn't popular at all to... Uh, uh, write and speak of such things uh, because um, a lot of the researchers were quite biased in their point of view. Uh, and, you know, they were really essentially only looking for confirmation bias. Uh, if they consulted with a psychologist uh, about a witness, um, it was simply to find out if the person was sane or not. But really, as we realize more and more now, uh, consciousness and physics are the main areas We've got to study and see how it all interconnects. And at a deeper, you know, there's, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, you've got psychology, you've got parapsychology, you've got physics, quantum physics, classic physics. And all of these areas have to be all studied together, multidisciplinary. And a lot of people just aren't getting along. You know, the, the cryptozoologist doesn't want to share his information with a ufologist. Like, that's a waste of my time, you know. And and they look at it as a separate discipline when in, in reality we should be looking at all of this as, as Keel did, as potentially interrelated. One of the very interesting facts I learned from reading your book about John Keel is that in the city of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, they hold an annual Mothman Festival each year. Yes, they've been doing that, um, oh, since I think a little, maybe 2001 or 2002. And Keel actually attended one of them back in 2003 when they unveiled the Mothman statue off, off of the main street of Point Pleasant. And at those uh, gatherings, I mean, at the, it's unbelievable. A little town of maybe about 5,000 people, suddenly there's over 10,000, you know, and you're looking for parking places. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's quite an event. You get, uh, people from different fields who go there and, uh, 
there's a, a local theater, an old theater there where they uh, have a stage that people, you know, uh, researchers in, in various areas of cryptozoology or ufology or parapsychology get up and present their findings uh, to anyone who wants to come in and, and listen. And uh, there's actually a Mothman Museum uh, on the main street. Um, in fact, the owner actually has written a couple books of people he's interviewed who had Mothman recollections. And uh, there's a lot of exhibits um, of uh, newspaper clippings and videos and uh, even uh, John Keel's jacket that he wore when he was visiting Point Pleasant Mothman Festival in 2003. So, <laughs> which I did a little recording while I was standing in there hoping maybe I'd get an EVP, but I didn't. <laughs> Well, we will talk about EVP because I know you have endeavored to uh, reach out and contact John Keel since his death. I believe it was in 2009. But before we go there, Brent, I think many of our viewers are still kind of scratching their heads and asking, well, what is this Mothman? Maybe you could describe uh, how uh, the various witnesses uh, referred to this creature. There were a number of sightings that occurred, and some of the, some of the researchers in ufology at the time uh, thought, no, this is nonsense. Uh, they were even harassing some of the citizens, I understand, uh, Calling, calling him up on the phone saying, come on, Keel paid you to say this or whatever. Um, and uh, it was, um, it wasn't just Keel though. I mean, I've actually been in touch with a uh, researcher from Sweden who came over in 69 and uh, 1970 on two occasions, spent several weeks, interviewed about 30 of the witnesses himself, came up with many of the same anomalous details. Um, now, a lot of the, the eyes, there's been a controversy about the red glowing eyes. The eyes often seem to have almost a hypnotic uh, effect on, on the witnesses. Uh, it, they, it really frightened them. And um, this was a big, tall, um, you know, six, seven-foot bird <laughs> from head to toe, uh, had wings, you know, large wingspan. And the anomalous thing was it would, like, stretch its wings apart, as some, some witnesses describe, but without flapping them, it would just suddenly shoot straight up in the air. And um, I know the gentleman from Sweden said that people, uh, you know, he met a lot of the people, the families, and said that again and again, uh, these witnesses, the family members, friends, would tell him again and again uh, that they're not the same person. Uh, it was very traumatic, the experience, and it left a you know, uh, a long lasting effect. And I think some of them became smokers afterwards, you know, and, uh, and he also came across as Keel did, uh, instances where people afterwards had poltergeist effects, uh, unusual phone anomalies. And, um, again and again, you know, the, these same elements cropping up. And, uh, so that's what I, you know, was quite fascinated with too. And, 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 when I started my own uh, field investigative work. So the, the point, I guess, of the book, The Mothman Prophecies, originally published, as I recall, in 1975, some years after the original investigation, is, is that the people who were 
encountering this Mothman creature and were frightened by it. As I recall, in one case, the, the creature seemed to chase them some distance into the town of Point Pleasant, where they reported it to the sheriff. Uh, these people began experiencing a whole host of paranormal experiences, in particular, uh, premonitions relating to the bridge that collapsed. I was in Point Pleasant uh, with some friends from the Cincinnati area one time, Cincinnati, Ohio, back in a uh, weekend back in uh, May of 1976, so a little less than 10 years after all this had broken out. And um, I got to meet uh, one of those witnesses, Linda Scarberry, who uh, was one of the original people that, you know, her and three other people that were in the TNT area that night, uh, young people, and, and this uh, thing with these big red eyes had been seen and flew over their car on the way back to Point Pleasant, uh, very frightened, went to, uh, to the police about it, and, uh, you know, was... They were the police were quite uh, quite impressed, you know, that these teenagers really seemed upset. And uh, so years later, I happened to be in Point Pleasant. I, I actually go to the house, meet her mom and dad and some other family members. And I hear all these stories about uh, doors opening and shutting and unusual odors and and uh, even like apparitional figures and. Uh, and I also talked with a um, Mrs. Thompson, who Keel had written about, who had seen this unusual figure back in November 1966 in the TNT area where her husband worked and they lived. And it was becoming a come a storm was coming up, and uh, she went outside to cover up some motorcycles. And while she was outside, noticed across the road that there was this tall, dark figure. Now she didn't see any wings, but it was a tall humanoid type figure with. Uh, um, it was making, it was a noise like a uh, broken fan belt. And she said her ears were kind of popping, making a popping noise. And her attention was focused on it. She said it moved like lightning across the field. Uh, she couldn't imagine anybody being able to move that fast. And she concluded in her mind that it was a robot. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, she was unable to break this, like, it was like she was in a trance. And she was one of the people that had, uh, dream that there was going to be a disaster on the Ohio River, didn't know just what it was going to be. And she told me that she'd had other uh, premonitions like that, uh, you know, over her throughout her life. She even told me about a uh, fire at a jail in Point Pleasant where several people died. So apparently this wasn't all that uncommon to her, you know. And this kind of goes along with Keel's idea that he expressed early on that a lot of these people have some form of psychic sensitivity that opens up opens them up for a lot of anomalous things, whether it be a, a flying saucer observation, some sort of unusual creature, apparition, poltergeist activity, whatever. You know, there's a whole wide range of things that, uh, as you well know, <laughs> uh, could be, uh, you know, discussed, debated, pondered, explored, dissected, and <laughs> questioned. Well, John Keel, as I recall from your book, was a Fortean. In fact, I think he organized a local branch in New York City of the Fortean Society following the uh, works of Charles Fort. That's correct, yes. Uh, of course, Charles Fort wrote of, uh, he would, you know, 
go to uh, libraries and, and collect all sorts of unusual stories from meteorological journals to uh, newspaper accounts of unusual accounts of, of all sorts of things. And uh, he wrote four books altogether during his, his lifetime of this sort. And uh, Keel was, uh, you know, he read, he was uh, someone who read all kinds of things. He was a reading machine. And uh, he was fascinated by a lot of the things that Fort described. So he considered himself uh, kind of open-minded in that respect as, as, as Charles Fort. He looked at all these different things, be it airships or strange apparitional figures or, or whatever the case may be. If one were to go through just Fort's four books, I think you would find over a thousand instances of inexplicable events, uh, things like frogs raining down from the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was uh, back in the early 80s, I wrote for the local newspaper and uh, we had one of those cases here that a woman had described and... Uh, I called my column the odds, odds and ends. And uh, so I tried to find local stories, you know, that were kind of like that. And at first it was the, the editors considered it kind of humorous and interesting. But as as I wrote about other things, UFOs and Bigfoot, I think they thought, oh, my God, this guy's serious about this. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, it lasted only for a, a short while. But, uh, yeah, I mean, these stories... Um, and they're all over. I mean, it's not just Point Pleasant, West Virginia, or certain window areas, as Keel called it, areas where, oh, you know, uh, anomalous activity seems to reoccur over, you know, maybe centuries in some locations. But sometimes it's the people uh, themselves who are, are unique and uh, who have some kind of, uh, for whatever reason, and that's something that's, um, you know, there's a lot of theories about. I know that... Uh, uh, you've got uh, a number of scientists who are trying to find out what that X factor is, what makes some people susceptible and prone to these experiences. Um, and, you know, like um, I've known people that would talk about, be, you know, having these experiences in a house that was haunted. And then they'd go on saying, I lived in this other house that was haunted. And then, oh, yeah, and there was another one. It was like, no, wait, it's not the house necessarily. It's <laughs> it's you, I think, maybe. As I recall from uh, your biography, uh, you've also interacted a fair amount with Native Americans who seem to have a, a greater familiarity with this type of phenomena. Uh, yeah, that's something that, um, you know, back in back in the 70s, I was traveling around and I met a a woman up in uh, Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, near Akron, and, and she was a contactee. She had uh, some Native American ancestry, and she told me about this uh, incredible Native American medicine man who also had contact with uh, these beings from um, outer space, but they were part of uh, his culture, the Udushqua. These were ancient beings of his own culture. And uh, he claimed they were very tall, giant figures, and they would come to his house there in Pennsylvania. And so I went down there twice and uh, interviewed him. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, he had uh, some amazing stories. Yeah, his uh, wife showed me a drawing of a, 
a craft she called the fire canoe that landed in their backyard one time and uh, these tall beings came out and uh, came into the house and spoke with them. I think it's fascinating that these reports of uh, creatures and uh, other sorts of paranormal activity, John Keel had two terms that he seemed to emphasize. You've mentioned the one, windows, that uh, they occur, it appears in certain geographical locations where the window or the portal maybe to another dimension exists. And, and the other term he uses is waves, that they seem to be associated or connected through time, that they, uh, lots of phenomena seem to appear here in, uh, well, in waves, in groups. And he looked at, you know, wrote about the electromagnetic spectrum and how there may be a, a force within it that he called the super spectrum that uh, uh, he said uh, he was writing a kind of a simplified ver version at the time of quantum physics, uh, but that, you know, maybe there were a certain uh, solar flare activity or something uh, that was going on that maybe affected the uh, geomagnetic uh, uh, landscape in certain areas. Uh, certain areas that, um, in fact, back in the day, he was actually emphasizing uh, that investigators should get these uh, geomagnetic survey maps that the uh, U.S. Geological Survey uh, had done this study back in the 50s and 60s, uh, sending planes out across the North American landscape and and from those planes, having instrumentation that would detect um, areas where there were, you know, geomagnetic anomalies and seeing how UFO activity in their areas compared to these these particular sites. And, of course, Keel felt it wasn't necessarily extraterrestrial. It was, um, you know... He called it ultra-terrestrial because it seemed to be a part of our environment and wasn't really something that started uh, with the UFO uh, age that began in 1947. There were reports of similar things going back much earlier, centuries earlier, and he even questioned, well, maybe, uh, you know, in the Bible, um, maybe Ezekiel, uh, maybe some of the prophets, uh, they, you know... Uh, they describe the wheel and the wheel and other things, mysterious chariots. Uh, today, what would we call them? You know, what what they ha they didn't have that kind of those kind of uh, way of looking at things that we have in our culture today. Uh, that was a different time and a different way of looking at things. But you know, uh, Jacques Vallée wrote his book Passport to Magonia in 1969, comparing how the fairy faith uh, different cultures had a lot of similarity, these, these beings, to our modern abducting greys and so forth. Uh, people would disappear, allegedly, for a time. They would be missing time, and and then they'd be brought back, find out, you know, uh, there'd be strange rings on the ground, uh, you know, that they associated with the fairy dancing. Um, there would be sometimes these strange orbs of light. Um, you know, so it's uh, a lot of... A lot of things that uh, that you can look at and say, okay, um, we have these stories of beings and strange lights, objects in the sky that go back, way back, uh, maybe back to as far as recorded history could go. <laughs> and um, I think these are the important points that, that Keel was trying to establish, that you look at the modern and historical accounts and uh, a lot of this stuff seems to be interwoven. 
but we miss a lot of it because we get sort of hung up on uh, uh, a certain belief system we develop from from the reports and how our culture looks at it and perhaps how it kind of, you know, if it is, there is an interactive intelligent force behind it, as I think there is uh, myself, then it uh, may uh, read us and decide that, uh, you know, it's going to conform to our expectations rather than just uh, uh, just come out directly with something that maybe we're kind of so primitive in their viewpoint. Um, it would be like us trying to communicate with a colony of ants. Someone has used that uh, comparison. I don't know. I hope to. I like to think we're a little more sophisticated, but <laughs> ants are pretty smart in their own way. One of the most unusual stories that impressed me in your book about John Keel had to do with uh, the time that he was visited with one of uh, his best friends that he hadn't seen in some 20 years. And only later did he learn that that individual was deceased. That was on December 15th, 1967. And he was in his, he was back in New York City in his apartment. And on this day, um, an old friend, in fact, in 1950, he was, uh, a, a best, best man at his uh, friend's wedding. And so they had known each other quite a number of years, but they hadn't seen each other in, in a pretty good while at this point. And he just happened to show up at his door. Um, and they spent, you know, it was like early afternoon, right up till midnight. Now, Keel said, you know, it was his old friend. He had his memory. Uh, had it was, it was definitely him in appearance. He had no question, you know. It was Dan Drazen who told me this initially. Uh, he was there in the apartment when the guy was there. He shook his hand. He, had, he said he was a guy with, you know, large hands. And uh, Keel was def definitely comfortable with the guy. Uh, you know, it was an old friend. But then... Sometime later, and this, and you know, he sent me the letter that Keel wrote him, and you know, he can't explain it. He says uh, Keel wrote that he was in Macy's, and there was the guy's wife, and he said, "Oh, how are you doing?" And then got around to talking about, "I saw your husband a while back," and um, and she told him that, "I'm um, sorry, uh, he he's died. He died of a heart attack." And his, and Keel said, "When did that happen?" And she said. July of 1965. And Keel, you know, he said, no, no, that, that can't be. I saw him in, in uh, you know, November of 1967, over two years later. And she's, she got rather indignant, he said, and, and said, John, don't you think I'd know, uh, you know, when, when it was, I was there. I went through the whole ordeal, you know. And uh, so... Anyway, he wrote in the letter, Keel did, that uh, that has caused, caused him many sleepless nights. Well, I can say that I've known Dan Drazen for over 30 years. I respect him highly. I regard him as a person of unimpeachable integrity. So when, when he says that he met this individual uh, who later turned out to have been deceased, uh, it really is consistent with other stories that are in the literature, and there are actually many of them having to do with, you know, the complete materialization of deceased individuals. It's certainly not the only case. Oh, certainly not. It, uh, you know, we've even had a 
similar story in, in my own family. Uh, you know, my, my wife's uh, mother has passed away and, uh, not long after she, she passed, oh, a little over, a little, a little over a decade ago, um, my, uh, daughter said that, uh, she appeared in her house and, uh, was, uh, playing with a young grandson and, you know, she said her mother was, I mean, her grandmother was there playing with the child. She was on the couch and, you know, she'd been sleeping. She woke up and saw this and, uh, was like, what are you doing here? And, you know, it was like, yeah, just, you know, just, just, it's okay. We're just, we're just, we're just playing. And then the sun started coming up and she said, she started going out the door and she says, you know, do you want to, do you need me to take you somewhere? And said that uh, her grandmother said, you know better than that. You know where I'm going. You can't go right now. <laughs> and said she walked toward the sun and it just sort of, she just sort of faded off uh, while she was trying to see her in the sun and then she was just gone. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I realized there's, uh, there's other stories out there. And that's one I can, you know, I can attest to from my own family. Earlier, we spoke of EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, and I know there are tens of thousands of hobbyists who endeavor to communicate with their deceased friends and relatives or maybe even strangers using computers, using radios, using uh, devices. I think one of them is called the spirit box. And after Keel died, you attempted to establish communication with him yourself. Well, I know after he died, I was thinking, what a what a tremendous loss, and um, you know, I had that personal connection with him. I was going to miss him, and um, I was. That was in. He passed away July third of, of two thousand nine, and uh, he was seventy nine years old. His health hadn't been really all all that that good, um, unfortunately. But um, I had met a few months later. Um, um, a gentleman named Brett Oldham. And at the time I met him, I just knew that he was uh, really into being a, you know, doing paranormal investigations. And uh, I didn't know till later that he was actually uh, someone who was an alien experiencer, uh, encountered a ghost and an alien both in separate experiences back about five years of age. And he was, uh, he had this kind of sensitivity to, uh, repeated encounters with aliens and ghosts, <laughs> you know, and uh, of course I couldn't help when I heard all that of what John Keel had said about, you know, what's the difference. But anyway, he was using the, the ghost box and, uh, uh, it was a, you know, like a radio shack, uh, AM FM digital radio. And, uh, he would turn it on continuous scan and have it, uh, where he would listen for voices that were, you know, like in the white noise area of it. And I was, I was, a, kind of skeptical. In fact, first time we attended one of his sessions, um, I, you know, I uh, watched over my the grandson while my daughter and uh, my wife, uh, you know, went with some others to, to try it. And afterwards, I heard about how um, a voice said, you know, my wife's name, Joan, and then Jesse, which was her brother who has passed away. And uh, I thought, well, that's quite an interesting coincidence. So anyway, um, 
Then we did some investigations, which I was involved with, and uh, John Keel came through, you know. And I've been thinking about, you know, privately, you know, John, can you come through? And then, you know, lo and behold, uh, here it was happening. So on July 3rd of 2010, it was just a year later. And I uh, I asked the group, you know, we met at a friend's house, uh, Sandy Nichols, up in Thompson Station below Nashville. And uh, I said, you care if we uh, try to reach out to John Keel? And so we, I think we had three recorders recording. We had uh, Ghost Box hooked up to a... Uh, stereo speakers that were very loud we had to yell to get our to be heard and we got some great recordings there was uh brett saying can you have him say john keel and like a second or two later a male voice says john keel and uh and then he had you know brett had seen uh, you know when he was a teenager bigfoot in ohio and keel was interested mothman and bigfoot and all cryptids so he asked him what can you tell us about bigfoot and uh, it definitely said Bigfoot, but it sounded like you said Smuck Bigfoot, see? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're like, what? And and then there were like two other voices in the background, see, see. And um, then I asked, uh, well, you know, John, what can you tell us about Jadu? Because Jadu, Black Magic in the Orient, back in 1957, he uh, made this trip for several months across uh, from Egypt all the way to Singapore, going through Tibet and places uh, where, you know, he was interested in the, the magicians and the, the holy men and all that, and uh, even tracked uh, a Yeti uh, that was being reported, saw the footprints, heard the call, thought maybe he'd seen one one day, but he couldn't tell if it was on the other side of a lake. Might have been a bear, but, you know. Uh, he was writing to a, a newspaper editor or, or magazine editor, that was it, uh, who was helping to finance his trip uh, and uh, telling him the story. And the guy, he said, the uh, uh, the magazine editor said, well, just say it was Bigfoot, Keel. That's real popular right now, or Yeti. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the... Um, um, uh, we did, you know, we got those interactions... And, and, you know, he did say Jadu, a voice said Jadu. And uh, so I thought, well, get a strike while the ion's hot. So I asked again, yes, what can you tell us about Jadu? And, and, and everybody heard it. We recorded it and uh, said, uh, well, what it sounds like, it, it kept breaking up, but it was this voice going on and on into the fire, into the fire. And as I reflected on it, well, you know, if you're talking about black magic, I guess the end of the fire, into the fire might make sense. And then it kind of faded out. And then it came back a little and says, teach me outside. And in my mind, if it's Keel or someone uh, with knowledge of Keel and how, his, how he thought, then teach me outside would be like he was, uh, he was someone who was intrigued by all these different cultures about learning from going out in the field and and getting the information from the source whenever he could. It sounded like uh, this could be Keel, you know. In fact, a little over a month earlier, we'd been at a haunted site, and twice uh, Brett recorded John Keel on his ghost box, uh, coming through the, well, yeah, coming through the ghost box, the radio, on AM frequency. And also, um, 
again, Brett asked about, uh, someone said they'd seen Bigfoot. And he asked, what was it? And what was causing the tree raps, which Bigfoot's supposed to, supposed to do? And uh, this voice said, monster. And uh, that got me excited. I, I, I produced a letter, the first letter that Keel wrote me. In 1969, he said, I'm writing a book, an encyclopedia on monsters. And I said, for Keel, it wasn't Bigfoot. It wasn't, it wasn't cryptids. He always talked about monsters. And I showed him the copy of the book that, you know, he was talking about the later written Strange Creatures in Time and Space. In the very first chapter, uh, the very first page, he starts out talking about monsters. And I said, you know, what a coincidence. We get John Keel and we're asking him about, you know, a supposed Bigfoot. And he says, monsters. Perhaps one of the most humorous things uh, that ever happened was uh, one time we were trying to, I, I said, John Keel, let's try an experiment. Um, I'm going to mention some names and you tell me uh, what you think. And I knew he had many people he disagreed with. And so I, I shot out some names. And uh, when I was reviewing it later, I had the headphones on and there was this voice that to me sounded like John Keel. And it says, what do you think about this person, that person? He says, and what I think about you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, well, you know, Keel had quite a wicked sense of humor. Well, Brett, this has been a fabulous conversation. What a wealth of experience you have. I want to encourage our viewers to check out your book. I think one of the most interesting aspects of it is that you've interviewed maybe a dozen researchers who knew Keel themselves and who were influenced uh, by him. So like like myself, you're an interviewer. And uh, uh, like myself, you have uh, an encyclopedia of knowledge. So I'm very hopeful that we'll have many more conversations in the future. Well, that would be great. I, I sure appreciate uh, you uh, inviting me on to your program. It's, it's a wonderful program. I've, I've watched quite a number of your episodes and, and you're doing uh, oh, greatest interviews out there, really. So I'm honored to uh, be one of your guests. So thank you very much. Thank you for being with me, Brent. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.